Father God, uh, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to be here together. And uh, I thank you now for the opportunity to open your word. Pray that uh, you would allow me uh, the capacity to be able to communicate clearly this morning the truths of your word. Pray that you would give uh, open hearts, open ears this morning to hear, to understand, and give us all the ability uh, to put your truth uh, into action in the way of applying it. So we ask for your presence now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if if you've been around here in recent weeks, you know that uh, we've been in a mini-series on the fruits of the Spirit, uh, which is part of a larger series on the entire book of Galatians. And earlier in January, Pastor Brian covered the first two fruits of love and joy. And then two weeks ago, uh, Dan very excellently encouraged us with three observations about fruit in general, and then three resulting observations about the fruit of peace. Today I have the privilege of guiding us in a closer look at the fruit of patience, And hopefully today's sermon won't end up being an exercise uh, in patience for all of you. Uh, You may recall that the majority of the first five chapters of Galatians uh, involves the Apostle Paul clarifying the gospel of salvation in the face of an attack against it that had arisen in the New Testament church of Galatia. The attack came from those who were preaching that in order to truly be saved, One had to continue to abide by uh, aspects of the Jewish law, including being circumcised. So Paul is clarifying that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ, not by any works of the law, and that to live by the law actually negates faith entirely and is therefore a false gospel that would not save So if we are not to live by the law, the question naturally follows, uh, what then do we live by? And the last half of chapter 5 addresses that question. And I'd like to pick up our reading of the text from 5, uh, verses 16 through 23. What are we to live by? Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. As I studied the text this week, that closing phrase, against such things there is no law, uh, really stuck out to me. Uh, I read it as almost having a tongue-in-cheek nature about it. 
to those who are so concerned that removing the law with its external boundaries around behaviors will result in confusion about how to please God, Paul says in essence, okay, you want to talk about fulfilling the law or fulfilling God's desires for us? Then live this way by these fruits of the Spirit. There's no law against this kind of living, is there? The ESV note on this phrase uh, says this, Against such things there is no law, and therefore those who manifest them, the fruits, are fulfilling the law, more than those who insist on Jewish ceremonies, and likewise more than those who follow the works of the flesh, surveyed in verses 19 through 21. You might remember that Jesus clearly summed up the requirements of the law in Matthew chapter 22. In verse 36, a Pharisee asks, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus had made it clear that it's all about loving God and loving people, right? So with this list of fruits in Galatians 5, Paul says in essence, you want to talk about the law? Okay, let's talk about the law. It's all about loving God and loving people. And here's what that looks like. The Spirit flowing in and through us resulting in a life characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now we're talking about fulfilling the law. That's the significance of these fruits of the Spirit. They are signs of a life being lived by faith in Jesus Christ alone with the resulting presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts leading us to live in fulfillment of the very desires of God that are expressed in the law. So let's take a look at this fruit of patience. If walking by the Spirit produces the fruit of patience in the life of a Christ follower, what does that then look like? I don't think I need to spend a great deal of time demonstrating that we live in a culture that's ripe with the fruit of impatience. We love fast food We buy new computers that will shave milliseconds off the processing time of the functions that we use. And we communicate instantaneously from virtually anywhere using cell phones and texting. How about this? Uh, Esurance says it can beat Geico's 15 minutes by half. Seven and a half minutes could save you money on car insurance. And some of you may appreciate uh, the humor of deadpan comic Stephen Wright I took a course on speed waiting. Now I can wait an hour and only 10 minutes. (laughs) And a little closer to home, maybe, I googled the phrase five-minute devotions, and I found no lack of direct-matched hits. We want everything now. Patient people will stand out in culture. This is an opportunity to display the Spirit of God within us believers. So, looking at this fruit of patience, uh, the Greek word 
used here in Galatians 5 for patience is the word macrothemia. It's translated patience in the ESV. It's translated long-suffering in other translations. It appears less than 20 times in the New Testament. But its range of uses are in reference to patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, and slowness in avenging wrongs. So this morning I want to observe three arenas in which Scripture encourages patience and then identify three ways in which we can grow in these arenas. The arenas then are patience with myself, patience with others, and patience with circumstances. So looking at this first arena, patience with myself, uh, Pastor Brian is fond of the statement that preaching is intended to um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Uh, Some of you may be the afflicted this morning, afflicted with a defeating sense that you are not where you should be in your spiritual development. Some may have lost patience with ever-growing and have given up even attempting to pursue maturity in Christ. I hope I can encourage you now this morning. We see this particular arena of patience uh, right here in the text of Galatians 5, but a few verses earlier in Uh, Verses 1 through 6, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait. There's our patience. Eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Look again at that phrase in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We're encouraged to have patience in awaiting this hope of righteousness. But what is this hope of righteousness? It's the hope of becoming mature in Christ and characterized by righteousness. According to the ESV notes, it's the expectation of God completing righteousness in us either when we die and are with the Lord or at Christ's return. This hope of righteousness described here is a future event with fulfillment beyond this life. We can look at 1 John 3. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. We live in what some have called the now and the not yet. Here, John says, yes, now we are children of God, but we are not yet all we will be. 
Those of you who have become stuck in hopelessness over your growth, hear this. This struggle to be what we are meant to be is the norm. Of course, none of us is there yet. So if this is the norm, let's look at one thing we should not do and one thing that we should do about this. We've seen that we are to eagerly wait, patience, for God's righteousness to be completed in us. And yes, we are to pursue purity in our lives in anticipation of God's complete work in us in his presence one day. But what are we not to do? <clears throat> Look back at Galatians 5.1. We are not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. In our impatience with our spiritual growth, we are not to resort to our own efforts of law-keeping and external behavior codes. You say, but wait, you just read 1 John 3 where I'm told to purify myself. Yes, but purity comes through a heart that is being made pure by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, I cannot say it any better uh, than the ESV study notes say it. We wait for the hope of righteousness means that Christians do not attempt to produce perfect righteousness in their lives by their own efforts, as Paul's opponents were futilely trying to do. For their hope is not in themselves. Instead, they wait for God to complete righteousness in them. So if we are not to resort to mere law-keeping and external behavior codes, what are we to do? Dan touched on this last week, making the point that these fruits are produced only by walking with the Spirit. So how does one walk with the Spirit? Most often, this is not an overnight flipping of a switch. Walking with the Spirit takes on aspects of training. The Apostle Paul very often used athletic analogy in his writing. We see it here in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 25. He says, do you, know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. The NIV says every athlete goes into strict training. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Paul is making the point in verse 25 that no one just goes out one day and runs a marathon just by trying really hard. There's patient, disciplined training involved. In the same way, there's patient, disciplined training involved in walking with the Spirit. If you're discouraged by your spiritual growth and defeated with impatience, it may be that you have been trying instead of training. Let me say that again. If you're discouraged by your spiritual growth and defeated with impatience, it may be that you have been trying instead of training. So often I think we attempt to walk with the Spirit simply by focusing on the things we are not supposed to do, the don'ts, you might say, or the legalism, rather than focusing our efforts on learning to walk with the Spirit through abiding in Him. Jesus Himself said, Whoever abides in me will bear much fruit. We can't just produce true fruit of the Spirit by sheer effort alone. Walking with the Spirit involves disciplined training through abiding. We'll look more closely at some of uh, that training in our applications at the end. But to sum this up, 
have patience with yourself. Realize that true righteousness will only be completed in you in the life to come. In the meantime, abide in Christ, allowing his spirit to gradually transform you, but don't resort to law-keeping, to simply adding external, even extra-biblical behavior codes that have an appearance of godliness, but do not proceed from a heart where God's righteousness is truly being worked out through the practice of abiding. The second arena in which Scripture encourages patience is in patience with others. As much as we can sometimes get impatient with our own growth, aren't we often even more prone to impatience with the growth and the conduct of others? Some of the predominant passages on healthy relationships within the body of Christ refer to this fruit of patience. We might think of Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We see it also in Colossians three twelve to 14. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's take a closer look at these two passages, which we'll see to be very parallel texts. And I want you to see something through their parallelism. Both of these passages are among the few that use the exact Greek word that is translated as patience in Galatians 5. So we can be pretty sure these passages are near the core of what Paul was intending when speaking of patience in his list of the fruits. If you'll notice, uh, these passages use very similar lists of characteristics. Uh, that should define relationships within the body of Christ. Compassion, humility, gentleness, patience. Paul closes both lists with an encouragement to be patient and bear with one another. What's the implication? The body of Christ is not just about everyone seeing eye to eye and having natural affinity. There will be people within the family of the church that we will need to bear with patiently. How many of you have one or two of those here? But bearing with one another is one of the aspects that should distinguish the church. Jesus made the point that the world would recognize him for who he was because of the unity of his followers. Is that how we are perceived by onlookers? Do people look People uh, in the world look at our relationships within the church and say, wow, there must really be something to this whole Jesus thing. I have a small list of items tucked away in the back of a spiritual journal that are things I really want to instill in my children. 
One of the items on that list is the quality of being not easily offended. We could go a long way in our witness as the church by just learning to give each other the benefit of the doubt and let things roll off our backs. Paul adds in the Colossians list the very practical encouragement. If one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Has God been patient with you once or twice? We'll get into that a bit more later as well. I want us to see one more thing here, though, uh, in these parallel passages. We're going to read a bit more context in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So here's a description of the qualities to be present in our relationships. Then we jump down to verse 11, and we're going to jump a bit on this because I just want you to see the overall flow of the context. In verse 11, Paul speaks of the role of spiritual gifts within the body. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, and then jump to 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. And now specifically the role that we're to play in each other's growth. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I didn't feel that I could speak about patience with others without addressing this phrase, speaking the truth in love. Some of us love to take this phrase very liberally as license to speak to anyone at any time about our assessment of their lives and choices, often in areas that are not even clearly addressed in Scripture. Well, I told so-and-so what I thought about fill-in-the-blank. Maybe it's a movie they had seen, a perceived personality issue, or their involvement in any one of the sort of Christian taboos of the week uh, that make their rounds. It was the truth, and I said it in love. Let's back up a step and take a look at the word truth in this context. What has Paul just been talking about in verses 11 through 14? He's talking about the shepherds and teachers building up the body in doctrine, right? I believe this can begin to give us a clearer understanding of the word truth in speaking the truth in love. In John 17, 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and for those of us who were to come behind them. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Excuse me, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I believe the best understanding of truth in the context here of Ephesians 4 is the truth of the word of God, not what we think necessarily of someone or of their specific behavior choices. Yes, there will be times someone's behavior will violate clear truth in the word of God, but that is often not the case in the interactions I've observed 
where truth is spoken in love. Look at the parallel passage in Colossians 3. If we actually put these passages side by side and extend them both out a few verses, I think you'll see what I saw as I studied. They both contain a list of qualities that are to be present in our relationships. You see that in the top section. And they both contain a statement about the role we are to play in each other's lives. The parallel verse about the role in Colossians is verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Seeing these passages right next to each other, the Colossians passage seems to further enforce what we are to speak to each other, right? The word of Christ. We get a better understanding again of the meaning of truth in speaking the truth in love. I believe these passages also give us some sense of the relational setting in which we are to speak this truth and encourage growth in one another. These verses don't give any hint of casual relationships. These seem to describe consistent life-on-life interactions around the word of God. Deeper, I believe, than even just the casual relationships among people who happen to attend the same church. The people speaking the truth in love here seem to have consistent, sustained interaction together around the word. A familiar passage from Proverbs sheds further light on this picture. Proverbs 27, 17 says, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Now, iron is only going to sharpen iron by consistent, sustained rubbing up against. Iron does not sharpen iron with a glancing blow in passing. A piece of iron will dent and damage another piece with passing blows, but sharpening will happen only when they have consistent, sustained contact, rubbing up against each other. I don't believe it pushes the analogy too far to say that the same holds true in regard to seeking to bring about growth in one another within the body of Christ. The passage on speaking the truth in love does not give broad, general license to speak our opinions about one another in casual relationships. And there is little to be gained besides dent and damage. The word of God instructs us to engage in authentic community with one another, consistently encouraging one another around the truths of God's word, and being patient as God brings about growth motivated from true heart change, not a pseudo-growth by the pressure of trying to live up to each other's behavioral expectations, especially when those expectations concern arenas that are not even clearly addressed in Scripture. One final passage that gives light to this idea of patience with others and uses the same Greek word is in 2 Timothy 4.2. Paul is instructing young preacher Timothy and he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Seeing true growth of fruit in the lives of those we desire to see grow is most often just going to take time 
and patience. A number of translations, in fact, use the word long-suffering in many of these instances where the ESV uses patience. Any of you who have truly come alongside another believer in hopes of encouraging true heart growth in them know that it is often just long, hard work. Scripture encourages us to be patient, and the Holy Spirit within us will give us the capacity to exercise that patience. So we've looked at scriptural encouragement regarding patience with ourselves and patience with others. The third arena where scripture speaks of patience is in patience with circumstances. This may, in fact, uh, be the primary arena which is intended in our Galatians 5 text through the use of the word that is translated patience. In the coming weeks, as we move through Galatians, we'll see this aspect of patience with circumstances in Galatians 6. 6, 7 to 9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Be patient, believer. Don't give up the fight. There's a day of reaping ahead. Most of us, without taking much time, could probably name a number of circumstances in our lives that we wish were different. We have a spouse we wish responded differently to us. A loved one is battling an illness. We've invested the word of God in the lives of our children, and they have chosen a different path. We've shared the joy of Christ with a longtime friend who continues to resist faith. We've struggled for months or years to find work. Fill in the blank with your own challenging set of circumstances. The Word of God encourages us to have patience as we await God's intervention and or his blessing within the circumstance. Once again, uh, the ESV study note on the word patience sums up this idea so succinctly. It says, Patience shows that Christians are following God's plan and timetable rather than their own, and that they have abandoned their own ideas about how the world should work. The Spirit gives us patience to trust God's timetable. James 5 has this to say in verses 7 to 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you, not, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We see here the analogy of the farmer sowing his seed and then beginning the long wait to see the fruit of his labor. They see some encouraging signs. As the early rains come, the plant shoots up out of the ground. 
But then maybe it becomes arduous. The rains dwindle, the growth rate slows, and the farmer begins to tire of the waiting. And maybe some of you feel like you are there in your circumstances. But like us, what option does the farmer really have? He's at the mercy of the sovereignty of God. He can't, through impatience, cause the crop to grow any quicker. What if he loses patience and decides he's done with the waiting and attempts to harvest before the time? He will destroy the crop and not reap the full harvest. He must trust and wait for the late rains to complete the growth cycle and bring about the maximum harvest. How then do we, like the farmer, access this type of patience, this long-suffering in our own circumstances? Verse 8 speaks of one of the keys. It says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Don't gloss over the phrase, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This is key. What is James encouraging here? He's encouraging an eternal mindset that keeps our eyes on the goal of being ready for the impending day when we will be face to face with our Lord. In this context, we see the word patience in light of its meaning of constancy and steadfastness. James is saying, don't give up prematurely and cash in. You've come this far. Don't let up. You never know when your moment of accounting will come and you want to be ready. You want to be found faithful. Another passage encourages patience and an eternal mindset, but in a slightly different sense. It keeps the passing nature of this life in focus. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In the context of what awaits the faithful, this life is a blip on the screen. And the troubles that we face here, even the harshest of life's circumstances, will be completely obliterated in the light of the glory of being in God's presence. Here now it is Paul saying, don't be discouraged, but remind yourself regularly that we are not of this world and our Savior will deliver us to our eternal locale soon where this brief present suffering will be instantly forgotten. When my mom was suffering through the final long weeks of her cancer battle a couple of years ago, this was a verse that she and those of us close to her, clung to with all our might. Could we really hope to understand that the seemingly horrific suffering she was going through was light and momentary in context of the grandeur of the glory that awaited her? We had to. That was the hope on which we survived and persisted. I was privileged not long after she passed uh, to preach an entire sermon on the centrality in the life of the believer, of keeping an eternal mindset, an eternal focus. That message was called A Better Country, picking up the theme of Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, after speaking of Abraham and other heroes of the faith in the earlier verses, 
Verse 13 continues, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Seeing this passage in context of the analogy of the patient farmer, uh, these dear farmers toiled their entire lives and only saw glimpses of the harvest on this side of eternity. But they were patient and steadfast, knowing that the true reward for the believer is never in this life. Our hope is in the next. So with that suggestion of keeping an eternal mindset, uh, I have begun to turn the corner into some application. Let's complete that turn now and look at three points of application. Uh, Dan framed these very nicely uh, last week in making the point that fruit is produced only by walking with the Spirit. He suggested that walking with the Spirit is accomplished by feeding on the Word, praying, and obeying. We talked earlier about training to walk with the Spirit. These are our training exercises. First, feed on the Word. We can encourage the fruit of patience in our lives by meditating on the encouragement and examples found in Scripture. We've already talked about keeping an eternal mindset. What better way to consistently keep an eternal mindset than to consistently read the book that speaks of eternity? Or how about being encouraged by the patience of many of the saints written about in the Word? We already heard from James 5 earlier, verse 10 to 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. It is unbelievable what some of the prophets endured. Some of you are involved in ministry and may be feeling impatient and discouraged, like the ministry God has given you has become burdensome. Read the accounts of the persecution of the prophets or the list of trials that Paul endured in his ministry. In these examples, we will find abundant encouragement to be patient and remain steadfast in whatever relationships or circumstances we find ourselves. How about meditating on the example of our patient Heavenly Father? God's patience with us is seen throughout the pages of Scripture. Psalm 103.8, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul is speaking of his own salvation, and he says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let the patience of our Lord encourage you. So how does prayer 
relate to the development of patience. I love the concept of the practice of the presence of Christ. If you're not familiar with that term, it simply refers to living in an awareness of Christ's constant presence with you. It's the idea of carrying on an ongoing conversation with our Lord throughout every moment of the day. A man known as Brother Lawrence from the 1600s is most known for his writing about this practice. You see the uh, passage from Nehemiah here, and it's in your notes as well. Uh, I'm going to skip over that for time's sake this morning, but if you're curious about how this passage in Nehemiah uh, fits in, I encourage you to come to connection time later. Our discussion there, we'll, we'll get into that. But um, suffice it to say that uh, this is a prime example from Scripture of this idea of practicing the presence of Christ. In the context of patience, practicing the presence of Christ is an opportunity for us to recognize the rise of impatience in our hearts and minds and to take it immediately to prayer. I cannot tell you how many times I have prayed quick little prayers in responding to my children uh, when they're bringing about a rise of impatience in me. God, give me patience with this child. Love you guys. (laughs) Not long ago, I had recognized how easy it was for me to become impatient with my children early in the morning when they were sluggish and I was tired and crabby. For a season, I committed to getting up just a few minutes earlier so that I could beat them downstairs and have just a moment to sit and pray. God, even in my exhaustion this morning, give me patience as I interact with my children. That's a prayer I believe God delights to, to answer. I came across a sermon by Spurgeon in my study uh, that actually gives a similar example. I want to read it for you. He says, It, speaking of this type of brief prayer, need not occupy a minute, but it is wonderful how many snarls come loose after just a word of prayer. Are the children particularly troublesome to you? Do you seem as if your patience was almost worn out with the worry and harassment? Now for a brief prayer. You will manage them all the better, and you will bear with their naughty tempers all the more quietly. At any rate, your own mind will be the less ruffled. I love his phrasing there. But lest I share uh, only the example of my season of early morning prayer and give you a false impression of my own maturity, let me confess a different season more recently. After this past December, uh, with its run of Christmas services and challenges, I was completely depleted uh, emotionally and spiritually. I took the first week of January off, and I found myself uh, haggard and just plain foul toward my family. After a few days of this foul attitude and wondering why I couldn't seem to contain it, I realized something. In my burnout, I was neglecting time in the Word. I wasn't in a spirit of prayer, and my fruit production was showing it. We need the Spirit of God to flourish in us to bear fruit. These practices we've just been talking about of feeding on the word and praying. 
Uh, There are elements of our spiritual training regimen or spiritual disciplines that can develop obedience to the Spirit within us. Might there, though, be other spiritual disciplines that can develop obedient patience in us? Pastor John Ortberg has written a fair amount on spiritual disciplines, and he takes a very practical, down-to-earth approach. He defines a discipline as any activity I can do by direct effort that will help me do what I cannot now do by direct effort. He goes on, disciplines then that are spiritual are simply those that help me live in the fruit of the Spirit. So in our context, he's saying, let's give up trying to be patient people just by sheer effort. Most of us cannot do that. Let's look at activities that we can do that will help us through the Spirit become patient people. Ortberg writes, How many disciplines are there? As many as we can think of. Certain practices are basic, such as solitude, servanthood, confession, and meditation of Scripture. But we can turn almost any activity into a training exercise for spiritual life. For instance, we know that we are called to be loving. One thing I discovered when I spent a day trying to live in a loving fashion is that love requires an enormous amount of energy. And I was just too tired to give it. So I realized that as unspiritual as it sounds, if I was serious about becoming a more loving person, I was going to have to get more sleep. Can you relate? So how about this spiritual discipline of being well-rested to encourage the fruit of patience? Here's another, the discipline of slowing. Ortberg speaks to this as well. Slowing involves cultivating patience by deliberately choosing to place ourselves in positions where we simply have to wait. Over the next month, deliberately drive in the slow lane on the expressway. It may be that not swerving from lane to lane will cause you to arrive five minutes or so later than you usually would, but you will find that you don't get nearly so angry at other drivers. Instead of trying to pass them, say a little prayer as they go by. Asking God to bless them. For the next month, when you are at the grocery store, look carefully to see which checkout line is the longest. Get in it. Let one person go ahead of you. The list could go on, but you get the idea. We must find ways to deliberately choose waiting, ways that make hurry impossible. As we practice them, we should tell God we are trusting him to enable us to accomplish all we need to get done. There are just a couple of ideas you may not have thought of before in the realm of disciplines to foster this fruit of patience. So hopefully these applications of feeding on the examples of patience in the word, going to God regularly in prayer for a patient heart, and deliberately practicing disciplines that will encourage the growth of patience in our character, have given you some hope this morning. In closing, let me return to the example of the patience of God. We read earlier from 2 Peter 3.9 and saw that God is patient with us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In a corresponding verse in Romans 2.4, Paul asks a question to those who have resisted God's grace, asking, 
Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In a few moments, we are going to be celebrating God's patience and compassion toward us feeble, fallen human beings through the receiving of communion. In the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the grace of God to provide for us a way of making peace with him by the death of Christ and his payment of our sin penalty on our behalf. As we come to communion, we ask that you examine yourself. Have you truly embraced the shed blood of Christ as your only hope for standing before a holy God? Maybe some of you today would honestly identify yourself as still presuming on the patience of God, resisting his invitation, or counting on the fact that you'll have more time to respond at a later date. He patiently stands waiting, extending to every one of us his offer of salvation through faith alone in the work of Christ on our behalf. So what are you waiting for? You never know when your day of accounting before him may come. Today could be the day that you surrender. Do not presume on the patience and kindness of God. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance.